Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru, the podcast for and about conscious leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. This podcast is a deep dive into personal growth, spirituality, self-help, psychology, creativity, all the things you need to connect with your inner wisdom so that you can be the leader you want to see in the world. Our guest this episode is Paria Hasuri. Paria is first and foremost a mother of three, and she's also a pediatrician, an author, and a transgender rights activist. She wrote this beautiful memoir found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change, which begins in May 2017 when Paria and her husband first learn that their 14-year-old designated male at birth child is having gender dysphoria. And they learn about it when they are away on vacation, just the two of them around the other side of the globe. And this is how the journey begins. And Found in Transition concludes in October 2018, on the day when their now daughter legally changes her name to Ava and her gender at the Santa Monica courthouse. During the time in between, Paria navigates a full, the full spectrum of emotions and challenges around parenting a child who up until that point didn't show any signs of gender dysphoria. And remember, Paria is a pediatrician and that heightens her experience and informs her experience in the end. So we get into the book. As you know, if you're a longtime listener of Free Your Inner Guru, I do my best to read cover to cover every book of every author that I bring on here. So we go deep. And Paria is incredibly wise and I really think courageous because she writes about all the things that many parents in this situation also experience, but wouldn't, in her own words, wouldn't dare to say. And she shares her struggle with her own identity as an Iranian-American, being bullied as a child, and how that informed and influenced her reaction and surprise when Ava came to her indirectly. We're going to get into all of that. With great joy, I bring this episode to you just prior to Mother's Day, because this is a mother's story. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to check out the back catalog. There's lots more where this came from. And visit freeyourinnerguru.com slash review to leave a review of the podcast that help other people just like you find it. And at the end, I will share some other opportunities to connect and engage. Enjoy this conversation with Paria Hasuri. I'm so pleased to welcome you to Free Your Inner Guru, Paria. We have so much to talk about your wonderful book, your journey, and uh, and thanks so much for being on here. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Let's bring the conversation into your experience that really began, that you cover in, in your memoir, Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. So literally, in the beginning of this beautifully written memoir, you're on vacation and you receive a phone call from home. It's the last thing that anyone ever wants when you're away on vacation. You receive a phone call from home and this is events, your life and uh, your child's life is about to change. 
Could you give us a little bit of the backstory and, and then we'll go through like your own transformation during this time of transition? My husband and I were on a yoga retreat in Thailand. We were on like a remote little island and the two of us hadn't taken a vacation without the kids in several years. And we have, we at that time had two teenagers and a tween. It was 5 a.m. in Thailand. My cell phone rang and my heart, when your phone rings at five in the morning and you're in Thailand, something's not Good. And it was the vice principal of the school calling to say that our middle child, that they had to call my parents to come pick up our middle child from school because she had been, she had told a teacher that, that she did not think that she's a boy. She thinks she's a girl. And the thought of how she was going to tell us was so upsetting to her that she was self-harming. And because of the whole self-harming, especially they had to call uh, my parents to pick her up and then call us. And it was I it was one of the worst calls you can possibly receive because you're so many miles away. There's no easy way to come back. And it's a phone call I had been through quite a bit with her, but this was a phone call I was never expecting to receive. And I'm listening to you and I'm also thinking like it just from the standpoint of, you must've also just felt incredibly helpless, even in a way, maybe you would have felt helpless if you were sitting right there, but from the other side of the world, that that had to amplify the shock and the experience for you. I felt incredibly helpless and incredibly out of control. I am somebody who has always been like a super planner and controller. And so it was like, not only, yeah, not only am I helpless, but how can I fix this from where I am right now? I can't. So you return home mm-hmm. and I can't, I'm just trying to recall, I read the book about a month ago. So yeah. you, did you come home immediately or were, were yeah. you able to? And, and I also have to say, I'm having travel envy right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this was this was 2017 when we could yeah. still travel. No, I so I couldn't uh, I couldn't come back immediately. We were on an island that you had to get a little private boat to get to and we had taken like three connecting flights to get there from LA. So it took so we looked into I think we were scheduled to come back about 5 days later and we looked into coming back immediately. And the earliest we would have been able to come back would have been, would have still been like three days later instead of five days later because of the connections involved and all the planning. And so it was just like, it just didn't seem worth it to spend lots of money to come back two days earlier. So I talked to my mom and my mom reassured me that she had everything under control and that she was going to watch her the entire time and make sure that she was okay and not let her out of her sight for, you know, even a second until I got home, which ended up being actually a good thing. At first it was like, how am I going to stay here for five more days while this is happening in LA being on that little yoga retreat with close circle circle of people ended up actually being a good thing and a time to do a lot of sort of just thinking and processing. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And as you said, you were a super planner and as you can't super, there was no feasible way to super plan your way out of there. 
No. Mom's in control, which is really interesting. Yeah. And for us, we actually had a rule that we didn't fly anywhere. You couldn't fly direct. And this was like the one time we had not just broken our rule, but broken it in a massive way because we'd gone somewhere that you had to take three different flights and a little boat too. And so I was so mad at myself. I was like, this is what happens when I don't follow my own rules of don't go anywhere you can't, you know, get to direct. So yeah, it was hard. Just to give some context to the conversation and also to bring your daughter into it. Talking about gender dysphoria and gender transition, I think is newer for us all. Your son, your boy, who now is Ava and she, and this was, this is a big part of the the journey that you were about to go on. Mm -hmm. And so in those early days, when first and foremost, the, the well, well-being and welfare, if she was self-harming, that's very serious. Yeah. And so there's her needs and then there's your needs and your husband's needs. What was it like for you? Were, was it, were you okay with it immediately? Was it confronting? Yeah. Obviously it was unexpected. Yeah. I think... I was, so when Ava came out, she was 13 and a half. And before that, I didn't think she had any signs at all that she was transgender. So it was a complete shock to us when this happened. And I, my initial reactions were really anger and denial because I thought that she was just doing this to get attention or she was really confused or she was really desperate for something. And so that made me more angry than any, than anything, honestly. And I think I was angry because I was tired and I, I was tired from like everything. I was tired from working hard, having three kids, um, tired of parenting Ava, even though she didn't have any signs of what I considered being trans, had generally been a very needy child and had periods of depression. And I felt like I spent a lot of time and energy trying to help her through her you know, whole life. And she had seemed to finally be in a good place. And then this happened. And I was just angry <laughs> that I was going to have to deal with something again. And if there was any part of me that had thought there's any possibility that she actually is trans, my reaction wouldn't have been anger, but because I didn't think there's any way that she was trans, my initial reaction was anger. And so it wasn't so much about how am I going to take care of her as much as how am I going to deal with this whole situation? So I think, um, uh, yeah, I, I want to share with you. So I, I was single until I was 44 and I got together with my husband a couple of years before that. And uh, with my husband came a 15 year old. And so I went from single traveler or so forth to in our case, full time because his mother had passed away full time parenting of a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I think anyone who has had experience with teenagers, particularly parenting a teenager, 
would have a whole lot of empathy for that re- for that reaction. And you're like, I considered myself fairly well seasoned in teenagers. I taught high school for a number of years and you're a pediatrician. So that brings like this other element to it. Right. Like when you say you didn't see any signs in your child, it's not like your children were the only children that you're dealing with. Yeah, I've been at that point when she came out, I'd been practicing for over 15 years, seeing 100 kids a week in the office. Yeah, it was, I, she really didn't have um, any signs. And I, yeah, I think it was just the sort of fatigue and anger were my initial reactions. And it really, I went th- through that for a few months before it started to, I started to become apparent that what she was telling us probably had some truth to it. And then that's when the grief started to come in. And I was overcome with an overwhelming grief, unlike I've ever experienced before. And what were you what were you grieving the loss of? I was grieving the this vision for this child that I had always had. You from the moment you're kids are born and sometimes from when you're pregnant, you start envisioning this sort of future for them. And then you tend to, at least I tend to live in the future a lot. I also, I think a big part of my grief was also that I was really scared for her. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this was going to be something that was going to limit her, that because of this, she would never lead quote unquote normal life and that she would always be an outsider and she might not find like a partner if that's something she wants, that she may not find as good of a job, that I had all this fear about what all this meant. And I thought that this is going to severely limit her life. And so I grieved for the potential life that she could have had that was now going to be limited by being transgender if, if she mm-hmm. really was trans. Now, subsequently, I, I've changed and I, I don't think that was one of the big things I had to learn was to really let go of this uh, idea that being trans was going to limit her life and change my mindset on that so that it, it so that it didn't actually limit her life because if I had that mindset then for sure if I continued in that mindset then for sure her life would be limited but I think a lot of the grief was for that for this future happy thriving successful life that she may have lo- she might lose at, because of being trans and it's and there's and this is a conversation about gender too. So it's the life of the man or the boy or the son and having to, like you said about changing your mindset, mm-hmm. it's also changing how you see your child Yeah, as from, I feel like I'm stating the obvious, but there's a lot that we attach to, to gender absolutely in our roles and our visions for each other, even still today, I think. Yeah. Beyond, beyond the obvious. Yeah. I felt like I'm never going to know I that I would never know what a future adult male version of him would look like or be or who that person would be. And that's what I had imagined for her for for since her birth. So it was like and it was like I don't even here I am as a mother, you question your own identity so much. Here I am as a mother 
And I don't even know my own child. And for somebody who had wanted to be a mother her whole life, and for me, motherhood always made up 90% of my identity. It still does. I'm a, like on my resume, it's like mother. <laughs> and then it's, then it's like pediatrician, writer, wife, or whatever. If I had a resume or whatever, or, or even on my website. This hierarchy of paria. Yeah. On my website, it says Paria Historian. I think it says like mother, pediatrician, writer, activist. Mother has always been who I am primarily. So then if you don't, you, and then you don't, you feel like you don't even know your child, then what kind of mother have you really been? What does that say about your own identity and validity as a mother? So there's a lot of um, mixed feelings that go on when something like this happens and you're just were completely unprepared and not expecting it. Given that you've seen every single draft of the book and I've I've read the, the final version of it, when I think you made some pretty courageous choices in how mm-hmm. you wrote the book. And one of them was and this was part of my experience of the reader and uh, whether this was intentional or not, I kept reading and reading and you're going through all of these stages with Ava, including the de- the decisions around naming. Mm-hmm. And I kept waiting for the transformation, waiting for the transformation, waiting for the transformation in you. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was clear from the beginning that she knew and you set it up like she knew and and when she came out educating and yes. knowledgeable yes which you much later in the book post transformation explain is very is apparently a part of it, it's quite common mm-hmm. approach for the i imagine like a a 7 year old couldn't do that but mm-hmm. a 13 14 year old it's a whole different right you know, personality there and your frustration and your emotional experience through it is palpable. Yeah. I want, I wrote, I think I wrote all the things that many other parents in this situation also experience, but wouldn't dare to say, or don't feel like we are allowed to say, or we feel guilty saying these things. I was brutally honest. And because I think as mothers, parents, so many of us have these thoughts and and we feel so guilty about the thoughts we've had and our actions and we feel like we're not allowed to talk about them sometimes right like but, saying like saying up front that you're you were angry like that yeah. is even as a woman yeah. i think we're trained not to express anger right. about even the mundane let right. alone the big important things yeah and saying things like there was at one point where you know i thought to myself, oh, it would be easier if she had, when I was trying to decide if we we should let her start medical transition or not. And I couldn't make that decision. It was so hard for me where I thought, oh, it would just be so much easier if she had leukemia, I'd have it, which is like a terrible thing to say that it would be easier if my child had leukemia than was trans. That's a terrible, horrible thought, but it is a thought I've I had, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had thoughts, you know, like that. And I think it was because if your child has leukemia, then yes, you treat your child with chemotherapy. And that's what you do. <laughs> if your child comes out as trans and you're not sure that you believe whether or not they're trans and you're worried about 
whether or not this is going to be, you know, permanent or not, then you're making medical decisions that you're not, no, you're not a hundred percent sure that what you're doing is the right decision or not. And you're just trying to make the best decision for that day and, and what's going on. And so I wanted to write it with that level of honesty. And I wanted to show my level of complete devastation when she came out because I wanted for the, another parent that this is happening to, for them to see that you can go from complete devastation to acceptance and thriving and moving on. And I wouldn't be able to show that journey unless I showed how completely devastated I was. I have a friend who's going through the the transition is from female to male. I can tell that it's difficult for her to talk about how she feels. Yeah. The parent of the person yes. transitioning. Yeah. Yeah. For fear of judgment, maybe, or it's or prioritizing. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's fear of judgment. Sometimes it's prioritizing. Sometimes there's so much going on and so much to think about that you don't really slow down to think about your own feelings. Or if you do try to slow down to think about how it's affecting you, it's almost overwhelming and paralyzing. So you don't have time to sit down with what, with how you're feeling, I think. So yeah, could be a lot of things going on there. Yeah. yeah and that's, I think the book, the way that you've set it up gives permission for, for that honesty and mm-hmm. uh, of expression, even if it's just in, in reading it and, mm-hmm. and saying, oh, I, I identify with that. Your, there were several stages that you had to go through. One of them was choosing Ava's name. I found that really fascinating. Would you, do you care to, yeah. to share a bit about that process? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, the name was almost harder to let go of than the gender at some point, or maybe it was once I accepted the gender, but for names have a lot of significance to me. And so I'm Iranian and I have also had a struggle with my own identity for my whole life as an Iranian American and how much am I Iranian? How much am I American? Am I really not fitting in in either place? Wanting to prove my worth and place as an American and say I am an American at the same time as wanting to hold on to my Iranian identity. This is, I think a lot of immigrants have these this struggle between wanting to be American and saying that I belong here and still wanting to hold on to a piece of themselves and their culture. And so for me, I made the decision to name, give all my children Iranian names. And so when Ava wanted to, she initially wanted to, and and all of our, in, in Iranian culture, all names have a meaning and usually a family, oftentimes like, a family will name all their kids with like names that rhyme and have a meeting or names that kind of all start the same, or there's always like a theme with the names. And I had really carefully chosen the names of each of my children and each of their names had significant meaning to me. So when she wanted to change from her birth name and initially she wanted the name Lucy, I felt zero connection to the name Lucy because it's so 
not Iranian or Middle Eastern, or and it doesn't have, it's a beautiful name, but it doesn't have meaning or is significance to me. And it felt like changing her name to Lucy wouldn't have just been changing gender, but also letting, you know, she was still part of our family and a member right. in our family. So to change to a name that was completely different than everybody else in, in the house felt like also leaving the family or losing part of her Iranian identity. So we ended up giving her, but she definitely wanted a name that sounded American. So we ended up giving her a list of four or five names that we have in Iran, but also American use. And Ava is one of them, except the Farsi pronunciation is Ava. But And then we have the name Sarah. We have the name Farah. I gave her a list of four or five names. And I said, well, these names are both Iranian and American, and it won't be it won't feel to me you've also are like leaving the family or losing this Iranian part of your identity. And it, it took us a couple months to compromise on the name and for her to be okay with not going by Lucy and, and going by Ava. And sometimes I question whether I should have just let her be Lucy, like in, in hindsight, I don't know whether or not that was the right decision or not, or whether it was just like at that time, I was just desperately trying to hold on to something. But the name Ava definitely, I feel, and when we first named her Ava, and even where the book ends, I don't have much attachment to the name Ava. But now that it's been a couple years, I've actually developed an attachment to the name Ava, and I feel like it really suits her. And so that was really important to me. You spend months picking names out. I just started to tingle hearing you say that actually. I, that's lovely. Yeah. It's because it's this, there's this, I wrote down a couple of things here listening to you. And one of them was like, it's like this uh, rhyming with the rest of the family, not literally rhyming with the alliteration or with yeah. the meaning. It's we, there's, she wasn't necessarily saying she wanted to leave the family. She wanted right. to leave her male gender. Right. And that just be, it's different reading the book than speaking with you, but that's what's coming up there as far as mm -hmm. that whole identity thing. But also the two, two months that's, you're negotiating with a teenager about their name. Yeah. That's, that's be pretty daunting. I hope you don't think it's inappropriate that I'm laughing. Like I'm just, yeah, no, no, no. I love teenagers. Yeah. I love teenagers. They're so yeah. challenging. Yes. They bring so much and they show yeah. us a lot about who we are. <laughs> Yes, they definitely, yeah, they definitely do that. Yeah, I think, I don't know, for me, you, we had spent so much time picking out her name. And we also had like little, my husband had like little nicknames and how we pronounce the names. Names have always had a lot of significance for me and, and words have a lot of significance for me. And so it was, yeah, so that was a big challenge and it, I'm, but I have really, you grow to love. I've really now, I have developed a name, attachment to her name, Ava. And it's interesting because my mother will call her Ava and will, you know, will pronounce it the Farsi way. My mom is the only one who does that. And I would love to pronounce it Ava too, but she prefers, Ava herself wants to be Ava. And so I said, she's compromised enough, so I'm okay with it. But <laughs> yeah. One of the aspects of your journey, because it does cover the full gamut, like all the way from anger, a lot of the stages of grief, actually, like mm -hmm. anger, denial, 
eventually acceptance and now advocacy, you refer to, I can't exactly recall the words, but it's this shift from fear to love. Was that your first entry point into that journey from fear to love or or had you had to grapple with that before? I I don't think I really had to grapple with with it before. I think this was really my first uh, time really doing it. Although it applies to so many parenting scenarios. And so the, the whole idea is not to parent out of fear, but parent out of love. And so it would be like super simplifying. It would be if you're asking yourself, should I let my child transition? The the fear answer would be, well, what if she changes her mind? What if she gets beat up? What if she gets bullied? And the love answer would be to should let my, I let my ch- child transition would be who is my child telling me she is and what does she need from me today? And so the love answer is eliminating all the fear that's usually based on external things of what's going to happen and really looking at your child. Once I started practicing that, like every time I was hesitant, stopping to ask myself why I was hesitant and using that fear love question, it really changed things so much. And it it is scary to make decisions based on love and, and ignore fear. But it's really, it's the way you want it to be. Because I felt like if I was making decisions based on fear, then I wasn't truly parenting her that it was the outside world was. For me to parent her, ultimately, I want to parent her without the noise of what's on the outside. Do you feel like your experience growing up in America as, were you born here or were you born in Iran? Yeah, I, so I was born here and in, in 1973, and then my parents moved to back to Iran when I, in 1975. So when I was like two or two and a half, something like that. And then we came back again in 1983 when I was 10 years old. So. Did you think that experience, did it inform the that sense of either not fitting in or how? 100%. I think my own experience as when we moved, when we moved back, it was 1983 and I was in the fifth grade and it was shortly after the Iran hostage crisis. And I spent most, I was bullied for most of fifth grade and that sort of year of being bullied in in the fifth grade. And we lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. And I went to school. There was only like a handful of brown kids at my my school. And that year of being bullied really impacted me, I think, for the rest of my life. It's made me who I am today. And it caused me to have a lot of insecurity throughout my middle school and high school years. So I spent most of my middle school and high school years really feeling alone and on the outside. And then after that, once I went to college, I just became really determined that that I was going to do all these things and become successful and prove my place and my, and my worth. And I think so that fear, those years of being lonely and on the outside, that's the last thing I wanted for one of my kids. And when your kid comes out and says, you're trans, you can't help but project your own past experience on them and think, oh no, now they're going to be an outsider and lonely. And that's not actually what happened. I was so worried. And when she came out, she 
started because she could actually be her authentic self. She started making more friends and being happier than she's ever been. So I was Mm. me projecting my fears on her. I was completely wrong. And I think watching her be so sure and confident about who she was also made me realize that it was time like for me to finally put away my insecurities and need to prove who I am and my worth because she was so unapologetic unapologetically herself it was like why do I why do I feel like I need to prove myself I can just stop doing that this is who I am and and that's take it or leave it kind of thing and your family your family and your husband they've been really supportive yeah I was really fortunate and lucky in that I told my sisters from the very beginning and they were in the, even though they were just as shocked as I was, and they also thought that this couldn't be true and was probably a phase, but they were very supportive. They were like, okay, we're just gonna, we're here for you and we can figure this, you know, out and you just take it day by day. My husband and I were always on the same page, which was really important. A lot of not a lot, but I definitely do see, because I do work with a lot of other trans families now, I definitely do see families where one parent is supporting the child and the other parent isn't supporting the child. And it, you know, can tear a family apart sometimes and wound, you know, relationships. And for our family, this really brought my husband and I closer together because we were very clear that we really both saw it the same way. And and once we started to accept, we were very both very clear on the path to supporting her and how we were going to do that. Let's, I'd love to, this. I see an opportunity to not quite backtrack, but just to choose another theme for a moment yeah. and uh, and recognize that you're a pediatrician. And so even professionally, like what have you learned like from this initial, from the initial surprise and thought that it couldn't be true because of her age? This is an opportunity. Please educate me. Yeah. So I think the really the main thing I've learned is that before she came out, I thought that everybody who's trans has signs starting in early childhood when they're three, four or five years old. And I, which is why I didn't believe her, you know, when she came out. And so I thought you always have signs and, or you always know that you're trans and you either, some people just suppress it and come out later and other people don't suppress it and present that way earlier. But what I learned is that about half of trans uh, people don't really have gender dysphoria or realize the mismatch between their the sex assigned, you know, at birth and their gender identity until they hit puberty or later. And that it's really once their body starts puberty that they start mm-hmm. that something starts to feel not right, you know, or wrong. So that's the biggest thing is that you don't have to have signs when you're a little kid. You don't have to have always known that you were trans, that your true gender identity can emerge later around and around adolescence, later adolescence, even for some people, they don't figure it out or aren't aware of it till till young adulthood or, or later. It doesn't, it doesn't just present one way. So that's something I've learned as a pediatrician. And I've learned a lot of other things, just things that you more commonly see in trans kids and teens that 
may be more associated, you know, with, with being trans or clues. So for example, there is a higher, higher rates of ADHD and autism in the trans population. Obviously, the majority of people who have ADHD or autism are not trans, if but but it's there's a higher incidence of that in trans people. So for example, if you have a kid who has some depression, some social things, some attention things, but no really like none of the diagnoses exactly fit and there's something going on and you can't put a finger on it, it's a possibility that there's a gender identity issue that hasn't revealed itself. It doesn't mean so that it's on the map. It's, the case. Yeah. So it's but, like on the table. Yeah. But it should be, you should keep it on your like differential list and keep it in, in your mind. Or, uh, or there's a lot of higher sensory processing difficulty and sensory issues in trans people, which actually makes total sense. Things like being uncomfortable with certain shirts or tags, or which is part of sensory processing uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. That's more common in trans people, which makes, again, total sense because there's some discomfort with the body and how things feel when there's a sensory processing disorder. Now, again, the majority of kids with sensory processing disorder aren't trans, but it's just something to be aware and keep in the back of my mind for the kid who has like multiple little things, but none of them quite add up to a, a diagnosis. And you mentioned that now, because now we're two years since the end of the book. So yeah. the the glimpse that I as a reader had into your into your life finished there. That's a development between 2018 and now. So you're working yeah. more. Is that as a pediatrician capacity or more in the role of advocate or both? I'm definitely working a lot more in the role of advocate, but I will probably towards um, the end of the book, I mentioned that I sign up for a course to do some training in trans care. So probably starting in 2021, I will also be working more with like in the medical field with trans kids. But right now I do a lot more advocacy work. I mentioned in the book, a support group called Transforming Family. So I've been a I'm now a board member on Transforming Family and I do a lot of, yeah, so I do a lot of the intake calls for new families and help to facilitate the support group meetings. So I've been doing a lot on the sort of advocacy side and just involvement with other families, but I will be starting to do more in the medical aspect of it starting in 2021. Yeah. It wasn't clear to me, um, reading if you're if you were going to go because your writing really came back mm-hmm. to the fore during this time yeah. and then subsequently as you wrote this book yeah you had been writing you had a blog before right a, a running yeah. blog yeah I, yeah I used to have a running uh, blog and I used to just write articles here and there you're but, not a one instrument band hey <laughs> yeah my writing obviously picked up with this and then writing a book is a whole other thing. And I definitely want to write more. I'm sure that I will write more essays. I've had a few essays. I had one essay come out on the same day as the book and a couple others that have been published subsequently. And so I'm sure I'll continue to write essays, but I would like to really dedicate more time to more writing rather than when I was writing this book that took up a lot of time and now it's gone back to I'm writing more intermittently but I would like to figure out a way where I can regularly write more 
so as much as I've already said in, in, in reading the book, that's the thing that I was page turning for was where you go into acceptance. How is Ava now? Like, how mm. is she doing two years later? And Yeah, Ava's doing great. She's a senior in high school. She is applying to colleges right now. She writes beautiful poetry about her experience being a trans person. And some of her poetry has been published online. So she's doing great. And I think you mentioned, like, there was this in memoir writing and this arc and this acceptance. I think initially I had set out really when I started taking a memoir writing class, I was, I didn't even, I wasn't initially planning necessarily to write about Ava. My initial plan had been to write about coming into my own in my forties. And, and then it just became clear that it was better to blend in my story with her story. And that right now her story was more, more important story to tell, but I think the my writing really did flourish during this time. And I think writing for me, I was missing, always missed this side of me that's creative. I didn't know this that I have a creative side to me. And my creative writing side, I really discovered in my 40s. And it's something I want to continue to ex- explore. And I think that's sort of part of the arc and where the story is probably to be continued as well. Yeah. But Ava is doing great. I think there's a lot of writers in our family. (laughs) So. Oh, fantastic. That's exciting. And what you said about creativity, I self-care is one of the big themes that, that I advocate for. It was, has been a huge part of my journey and creativity is a huge part of, of self-care in my mind and, and way of looking at things. And because I know I have learned over time that if I neglect that piece of me, then that's when I start to struggle with stagnation and go down the road towards depression. And conversely, where my level of happiness can be measured by how often I'm engaging either with writing or with my, my photography. So there's this ebb and flow and we get into these things called careers or businesses that and families that take us that take up a significant share. Yeah, I've definitely felt since the book has uh, ended and I haven't had dedicated time to, you know, sit down and write that I really miss I really miss that. So I do a little bit of journaling every morning, but it's not the same as writing and creating a piece that you're then going to put out, you know, into the world. Yeah. What else do you do for to have all of these things on the go and be the sort of the leader in your practice and within the family? What else do you do for self-care? I still run a lot. I run four or five days a week. Usually I think running is my number one form of self-care. I, I do a little bit of journaling. I, I'll go through, I I don't really meditate. I think for me, running is my form of meditation. Once in a while, I'll meditate for a few minutes, but I don't have a, like a regular meditation practice other than, and the running. And for me, a big part of self-care is also dedicated time with your girlfriend is really important to me. So I consider like time with girlfriends, (laughs) self-care, like I, it's something that, you know, if I'm 
going through, especially during the pandemic where you're not, not seeing other people, but even other times in my life, it's like, if I have a really busy time where doing everything and, and not spending like a little bit of alone time with girlfriends, then I really miss that and get depressed. Yeah. Is it, is that because it's recharging or is it because you don't have to be the doctor or the mother and can just be that, like that person who kicks back? What's the, yeah, I think it's just recharging. I think it's like connecting in a different way with, I think it's about the connection, which is different than the way you connect with your children or with family or even connecting with other parents in the office is completely different than the relaxed yet deep connection with girlfriends. Mm-hmm. No. How is it, how is it going in the world of being a pedi- pediatrician in California, in the big, in yeah. Los Angeles? Yeah. What's uh it's a, there's an opportunity here. I'm not sure when this, this will be released, but I have a feeling the pandemic won't have gone anywhere. It's actually been really hard and, and stressful as a pediatrician, mainly because the right now LA schools are all still online and, and it's, so that's really hard on families and on children. And a lot of families are falling apart. And a lot of children are, are unfortunately falling apart because online online school is so difficult for children. Well, you're, you, you've been a teacher. It's so difficult for children. It's not how they're supposed, they're not supposed to be sitting on a computer learning from a computer all day long. And it's obviously very stressful for the parents. And I'm seeing kids from, of all ages, s- struggling from, you know, elementary all the way through high school. And there's also always a shortage of mental health care professionals. And it's hard to, the mental health professionals are overwhelmed right now. So these kids who are falling apart can't get into, (laughs) can't get appropriate mental health. And so then they have their 15, 20 minute, just checkup and vaccine and pediatrician appointment with you, but they're breaking down and you need to Mm -hmm. address their mental health issues as well, because they can't find mental health care, but I'm not trained as a one, I'm not trained as a mental health professional Two, that's not something I can address in a 15, 20 minute appointment appropriately. So it's been, I'm not, I'm yeah, not going to no. lie. It's been really hard. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that on so many levels. Yeah. It's not, it's obviously not an unexpected answer. Yeah. But I, sometimes I feel like putting out these conversations, I know that one of the intentions is to, to inspire and to show challenge and change and growth, but also there's just, we got to be, I feel like sometimes you just got to be real about, always be real about stuff. Mm-hmm. And all I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, is we need more solutions mm-hmm. and they probably have to come from someplace else that, yeah our systems and old way of thinking of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, haven't really, accommodated. We probably already needed it. Like yeah. to me, that's what all of this is doing right. is showing what the weaknesses, whether it's the leadership or the pandemic, it's, it's revealing what the weaknesses are mm-hmm. systemically, yeah. but then we have these human beings. Yeah. Yeah. We've never put enough resources into mental health and schools and 
now we need resources put into those two fields more than ever. And it's really created a really difficult situation mm-hmm. for families now. Reflecting back on your experience that led you to write this book, what would you like to see change as a, a result of your experience or Ava's experience or your family's experience? Yeah, I would, multiple things, but I think the number one, one of the main reasons to write the book was I wanted there to be more narratives out there of how being trans presents so that if somebody hears this interview or reads my story and doesn't think they have it, they have teenagers, they don't think they have a trans kid, and one of their kids comes out to them one day and says, oh, I have questions about my gender identity or I'm trans or whatever, that they don't immediately shut down their kid and they listen and know that it is a possibility for trans identity to present later. And so just because your child didn't have any signs when they were a little kid, don't dismiss your child and assume that what they're telling you is confusion or attention getting you know incorrect. So just for people to realize that trans identity can evolve later and it may seem like it's out of the blue to you but it's not necessarily out of the blue by the time a child comes out to you it's something that they have been thinking about of for a while and they're just coming out to you when they're ready especially if they wait till you go to thailand yeah they've been thinking about <laughs> it they wait till you're like so far that you can't i actually think maybe it was like we were so far away that she felt safe to go to a teacher and say, because we were like so many thousands of miles away, she felt like safe to come out to a teacher. There's got to be something with why she chose that time to come out. But so I think that's one of the things I would want people to take away from this book. The other thing, really, my goal in writing this story, they say that 80% of Americans have either never met a trans person or or if they have met one, they don't know it, but the, the 80% of Americans don't feel like they have met or know a trans person. And I think what we don't know, we fear or feels foreign. And so I thought if somebody reads my memoir, they will feel like they know a family with a trans child. And when you feel like something, you think about it differently. And if there's legislation that's wanting to take away healthcare rights from trans kids or legislation that's saying a trans kid can't play in the girls' soccer team, even though they want to, or something like that, that maybe they'll think about it and they'll say, why shouldn't her child have the same healthcare right that my child has, or why shouldn't her child get to play on the sports team that they feel comfortable on just like my child does. I think story has a power to make us feel like we know this, you know, person and and this family, and that can really change how we are. And really the goal was also to show that this is a story about a family with a trans kid, but it's really just a story about a family and that our family is not any different than any other family, really. So those were the things I wanted to hopefully demonstrate and for people to take away from reading our story. And what what about yourself and your own journey? What would you, if we were to choose any of it to generalize to maybe not just mothers, but women or professionals or everyone, anyone who's juggling all these roles? 
Yeah, I would say for parents or any really any adult out there, I would say don't um, underestimate your capacity to evolve and change. That's definitely something I would say is something I've learned from my journey. I've also learned that to live in the present and not live in the future and to take things day by day. Five years ago, if you had told me I'd be sitting here having this conversation, I would have said that's impossible because I don't have a trans kid. (laughs) So therefore, I don't see myself being an activist on transgender rights or something like that. And so that's why I also now have no idea what I'll be doing five years from now, because I've realized that I don't really know what's going to happen in the next five years. So I think that's another thing I've learned. And, and I think really my a big part of my evolution during this process was accepting and being proud of who I am as I am. And I, I learned that because I watched my daughter be proud of who she is. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. So Found in Transition is the name of the book and it's widely available. And uh, I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing yourself, your family, and and just wish you and Ava and, and your other two children and your husband nothing but the best. And I hope that this book travels far and wide because it's it got important messages for, for people who may not be able to find that many similar stories around. Yeah. So thank, thank you for you. writing it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, really enjoyed this conversation. And I really appreciate you um, sharing this with your audience. Before closing out this episode, I have a piece of wonderful news to share. Ava has been accepted to Yale. She's finishing up high school as we speak. And if you go on Instagram to Paria's account, which is linked in the show notes, you will see a photo of her and Ava with the biggest smiles possible both wearing Yale t-shirts and celebrating the news that Ava will be starting there in the fall. So congratulations to Ava and to your entire family, Paria, and, uh, and thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. And thank you for being here. I know you've got a ton of choice in the podcast universe. If you found this conversation or other episodes of For Your Inner Guru to be valuable, I have a request. There's three things that help a podcast grow. The first is when you tell other podcast listeners about Free Your Inner Guru and spread the word. The second is when you subscribe on your podcast app or at freeyourinnerguru.com. And the third is when you leave a rating and a review. If you'd like to actively support the podcast, please visit freeyourinnerguru.com where you can shop the t-shirts, hoodies, and notebooks become a supporting patron and learn more about the leadership community. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.